This morning's reading is Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, and can be found on page 1012 in the Church Bibles. Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man, of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come, to me, come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, you should have gone to Specsavers. That little phrase has become uh, rather popular, hasn't it, over the last few years? And it's just a slightly more polite and humorous way of saying uh, you really can't see straight. Uh, you need to get down to the opticians. Uh, I wonder if you've seen some of those uh, amusing adverts that say exactly that. Two in particular that I've enjoyed. One with a, a rather enthusiastic dad at his son's primary school sports day. Uh, his celebrations are, are wild as he thinks his son's uh, finished first over the finishing line. Uh, and then the camera pans back and he refocuses to see uh, the short, uh, chubby child, 10 metres behind everybody else, struggling uh, to get down uh, past the line. He should have gone uh, to Specsavers. Uh, my personal favourite, though, is of a, a young man who's on a beach spraying himself uh, with deodorant. It's a little bit of a rip-off of one of those Lynx adverts. Uh, and as he looks up in the distance... Uh, across the beach, he thinks his smell has attracted uh, a large number of uh, beautiful young women who are running uh, towards him. Uh, but as they get closer, the smile on his face disappears, and the camera reveals those women uh, are slightly older uh, than he first imagined. <laughs> and the caption comes up, he should have gone to Specsavers. Well, the passage uh, we're looking at today, uh, it's a very famous passage, isn't it? But it's concerned uh, that we don't have uh, clouded vision when it comes to the Christian faith, that we don't have a blurry uh, or slightly skewed view of the Christian faith, uh, the Christian message, uh, and what it looks like uh, to live out the Christian faith. You might remember we've reached a, a point in Mark where Peter has finally come to see that Jesus really is uh, God's King, the Christ. Uh, but we're going to see that his vision is still somewhat blurry. Well, what have we seen? So far, 
uh, Mark's been laying down the evidence for us to see that Jesus really is uh, the long-awaited Messiah, the authoritative king that God has sent to rule uh, and to save the world. And Jesus has been performing a whole host of miracles uh, to show his authority over creation, uh, over evil, sickness, uh, even death. And we've been left, I hope to conclude, that Jesus is no mere man or a moral teacher or a miracle worker. He's made clear he is the promised Messiah, the Christ, and we're to listen to him. But like I say, Peter's vision is still blurry. And Mark chapter 8 is a very significant chapter. It's the point where Peter's blurry vision uh, is corrected. First, uh, as we saw last time, uh, it's to see, it was to see that Jesus uh, was the Christ. But he needs his vision completely unblurred. And so we're going to see uh, that he sees who Jesus really is, the kind of king Jesus is, and what it's going to mean to follow him. So we're going to do that. The passage splits up into two sections. Firstly, verses 31 to 33, where we'll see the kind of king that Jesus is, looking at his mission statement and Peter's rebuke of him. And then secondly, verses 34 to 38, uh, we see the implications. What is it going to mean to follow this king? Well, I've tried to sum up uh, verses 31 to 33 like this. Jesus' mission is cross-shaped. Quite simple. Jesus' mission is cross-shaped. Just have a look back down at the words he says in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. If you've been a Christian for a while, uh, you know the gospel. That statement might not come as much of a surprise. Of course Jesus had to go to the cross, didn't he? We know that already. But put yourself in Peter's shoes uh, for just a moment. Peter's just witnessed Jesus healing a woman who'd suffered for 12 years. Why does a man with such power like that have to suffer? Jesus has just walked away completely unscathed from a man uh, full of a legion of demons who no one's been able to help, but Jesus has just freed him. Why does this guy need to worry about a few Pharisees scheming against him? And as for dying, well, hasn't Jesus just raised a girl from the dead, just with a word? What do suffering, rejection, and death have to do with this powerful king? Perhaps uh, we can understand Peter's reaction uh, a little more because of how Jesus refers to himself. Did you notice he doesn't call himself the Christ? He calls himself the Son of Man. Twice in Mark... Uh, Already, Jesus has used that term back in chapter 2 when uh, he shows that he has the very authority of God to forgive sins and that he's Lord uh, of the Sabbath. Perhaps look it up later. But now he's saying he must suffer and be rejected and die. You perhaps start to feel for Peter uh, a little more. And add on top of that what the Jews would have known uh, by that term, the Son of Man. Their thoughts would have gone back to those Old Testament promises uh, in Daniel, where the Son of Man is one who's going to be given by God 
All authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language will worship him. His dominion is going to be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. So can you see why perhaps Peter takes Jesus aside and says, what on earth are you talking about? You're the Christ. You're the son of man. You're the one uh, with all authority and power, aren't you? What's all the talk about suffering and rejection and death? Should have got the spec savers, Jesus. But Jesus is insistent about his mission, isn't he? That little phrase... The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die before he rises. It's something that's repeated twice again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, 31, and chapter 10, verse 33 to 34. Jesus is incredibly clear. His mission is cross-shaped. Now, of course, we know, don't we, suffering, rejection, and death, it's not the end of the story. Three days later, he will rise again, and increasingly he's going to rule in the hearts and lives of those who follow him. His kingdom is one that won't ever be destroyed. It's true that one day every eye will see him and every knee will bow down and acknowledge him. It's true that he's going to bring in a wonderful new created kingdom that's perfect. But Peter thinks that's going to happen now, without the cross. But Jesus' kingdom is going to be established through suffering, rejection, and death. And so Jesus strongly corrects Peter's skewed view. It's perhaps something that Peter should have realised. Suffering, rejection, death, they're central uh, to God's salvation plan. You might think of Isaiah uh, 53. It's perhaps the clearest Old Testament passage where God speaks of his Christ, his suffering servant, who's going to be despised and rejected, who's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, who will be pierced and crushed on a cross, taking God's punishment for our sin so that we can have peace with God. Although Jesus doesn't establish that's exactly what he means by saying he needs to go to the cross here, uh, we can read on and see that is God's salvation plan. It is the only way through which sinful men and women can know God and can have their sins dealt with. It may sound familiar, but it's worth being reminded, isn't it? That is what our sins deserve, death. And for God to be just, he must punish our sin. He can't simply wipe our rejection of him under the carpet, pretend it isn't there. But it's wonderful, isn't it, that even though Peter has this skewed view, Jesus is very clear about what he needs and must do. He's come to give his life as a ransom to take God's punishment for our sins on himself. That is why he said the Son of Man must die. His mission has got to be cross-shaped. And that's why Jesus' words to Peter are so strong. I don't know if you found them shocking. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's saying that Jesus should be a king without a cross. He should establish his kingdom now, without suffering. Well, that's the temptation of Satan, isn't it? Just like all of, other, all of his other temptations, it sounds very, very appealing. 
But Jesus knew his mission was cross-shaped, and it had to be. The little detail that perhaps um, you picked up on last time, that Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus noticed the disciples before he told Peter off in front of them. It perhaps explains why, on various occasions, Jesus has told them not to go around telling people who he is. They'd worked out he was the king, but they hadn't got the full picture. They were still hoping he was uh, some political king who was going to overthrow the Romans and establish uh, a comfortable, victorious uh, resurrection life in the here and now. But that was their blurred impression. And just think about how devastating that would be. They would have preached about the wrong kind of king who brought no solution for their sin. A king without a cross uh, and a kingdom that did not come through suffering would be devastating news. We'd never be right with God. Understanding uh, that the king of God's kingdom must suffer and die is huge. And it has huge implications for whether the gospel is actually good news for eternity. But it also has huge implications for our lives. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, for the rest of our time, verses 34 to 38. If Jesus' mission is cross-shaped, well, the Christian life is to be cross-shaped. I don't know if you often hear the phrase, well, we've all got our crosses to bear. Uh, We usually use it as a way of referring to something when we're uh, mildly inconvenienced uh, or something we'd rather not do uh, has come up, but it's just about bearable. Uh, Perhaps attending that extended, awkward family event halfway across the country, uh, filling in your tax return, um, taking the dog out for a walk in the rain was my cross to bear this week. But when Jesus spoke and said, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Nobody would have thought he meant mild inconvenience or something that you'd slightly prefer not to do. Taking up your cross was signing up to die. The modern day equivalent is saying, come and strap yourself to this electric chair. You might have heard uh, this quote before from uh, a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is, of course, what some of our brothers and sisters in the past and present do face. Death. But what Jesus meant was not just those extreme cases. Uh, His words have everyday implications uh, for us today in Basingstoke. John Stott said, Jesus' words can apply to martyrdom, but they're certainly not restricted to it. And so if we're serious about the Christian faith, uh, however long we've been a Christian, or if we're just weighing it up, we need to seriously think uh, about what denying ourselves, taking up our cross, uh, will really mean. It's to die to our old, sinful, self-obsessed lives, and instead, wholeheartedly, unashamedly, live for Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. I was uh, incredibly struck this week uh, by a story I came across about a missionary called Adoniram Judson. I think that's how you say his name. He was American who, in 1813, headed to Rangoon in Burma, 
uh, with his wife Anne. They gave up the comfort and culture of home uh, to live in the jungles of Burma and they soaked themselves uh, in the Burmese culture and language. It took him six years before he felt able to preach his first message. It took seven years before they saw their first convert. And it took 20 years of hard work to translate the whole Bible into Burmese. He spent his life writing tracts, uh, catechisms, uh, grammar for English Burmese dictionaries. I think you can still get them today, apparently. And he suffered uh, incredibly. He was widowed twice. He lost six children during his lifetime. His family was constantly plagued with illness. During the Anglo-Burmese War, he was suspected of being a spy, and he spent two years chained up in a filthy prison. And in 37 years of his missionary work, he only ever returned home once to the US. Now, all of that struck me, but what struck me most was not what he endured, but his attitude. When he asked his wife to marry him, it was anything but romantic. It sums up an amazingly wonderful attitude of what it means to follow Christ. He said to his wife, Anne, Give me your hand to go with me to the jungles of Asia, and there die with me in the cause of Christ. Well, Jesus calls all of us to have that kind of attitude. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had that kind of attitude here? If as brothers and sisters we could say to each other, die with me this week for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel. Encourage me this week to die for the cause of Christ in my marriage, in my workplace, in my social life. I imagine a cross-shaped life for most of us isn't going to mean travelling to the other side of the world and giving up our homes but it might mean opening up our homes for a house group or supporting one another in living for Jesus today, giving up our time, our energy, uh, our money. It might mean uh, very rarely having uh, a Friday evening off or Sunday evening off uh, with the family because you're helping with uh, the youth groups. It might mean uh, putting aside time that you'd earmarked for yourself uh, because someone in your house group is very lonely or depressed or needs someone uh, just to talk to or just to be listened to. It might mean uh, putting to death uh, your worldly reputation by being labelled a bigot or a dinosaur because you speak up for God's view uh, on important issues like marriage. It might mean uh, losing your friends because you faithfully share the gospel with them and they don't like that Jesus is Lord. It might mean uh, being the family lunatic or being the family bore because you want to obey Jesus in your life. It might mean being the scorned, honest worker or the socially sidelined party pooper. Like I say, most of us won't be called to live cross-shaped lives in Burma or become martyrs, perhaps. Uh, But we are to be martyrs in a sense. We are called to die, to live cross-shaped shape lives where we die to ourselves, our own ambitions, our own sinful desires and we humbly obey God whatever the cost 
in our ordinary, everyday lives. If we lived cross-shaped lives, they wouldn't look so ordinary and everyday, would they? Look at Jesus' words uh, again. He says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's challenged to hear stories like that, missionaries, isn't it? That kind of attitude, because we find living a cross-shaped life hard is by definition difficult. But Jesus doesn't offer us an alternative way to live if we're serious and genuine about following him. But he does help us to see why it makes absolute sense to follow him now. Look at Jesus' words uh, again. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Do you see the two options uh, we've got before us? Uh, We can live our lives now without any reference to Jesus and the gospel. We can concentrate uh, on ourselves. Or we can concentrate uh, and revolve our lives around Jesus and his gospel. What about that first option? Live uh, for ourselves. Live um, for today. I don't just mean wild living. That's easy to imagine. But it's just as easy to live a quite quiet, fairly upright, moral-looking life, but still stubbornly refuse to follow Jesus. To put aside that self-centeredness, that obsession with our own comforts. Quite often, though, That seems so appealing and tasty, doesn't it? I've got a university friend who was at university the same time as me, and he seems to have got life all tied up at just 27. He's got a BMW convertible, if you like that kind of car. Uh, He's got a big house. Uh, He goes on very expensive holidays very regularly, and he's got a very successful career in banking up in London. I'm doing a little bit better on than him on the getting a beautiful wife scene. But overall, uh, he seems pretty happy and with a very comfortable life. But he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't follow him. Even when we know uh, that people are just given the impression, though, that they're happy and comfortable without Jesus in their lives, the grass can seem so much greener, so much easier. Even just voting in the general election last week would have been a whole lot easier if we hadn't had to think from a Christian perspective. Not that much easier, but it would have been a bit easier. But the pull of the world uh, means that what we try to do is live kind of a comfortable cross-shaped life. Our old sinful self wants to take back the wheel and drive us back onto a road of self-indulgence and self-obsession. Focus on ourselves. Another challenging quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said uh, this about Western life. He said, I'm more and more convinced that most people get into trouble in the living of the Christian life because of the mollycoddling of themselves spiritually. In other words, uh, when we forget we're following a king with a cross, we get sucked into the false idea that there is such a thing as a comfortable cross-shaped life. 
It's so easy um, to do. I don't know if you've um, worked out that you can do a pretty good job of looking like a Christian in lots of ways, but have an attitude and a heart that really isn't self-denying at all. It's more of a sacrifice when it suits me setting. I don't know if you find yourself sometimes going, can't somebody else just do that? I'll do it, but can't somebody else just do that? Or that thought perhaps goes through your mind. Not that person again. I spoke to that difficult person last week for ten whole minutes, and it was terrible. It may well be that others can help out. Or we need to uh, help one another deal with uh, difficult situations or challenging people. But it's a challenging thought to think that when Jesus took up his cross, he didn't say, can somebody else do it? And he didn't spend 10 years with, 10 minutes with difficult people, did he? He spent 33 years with difficult people who wanted to kill him. Back to our options, though. That's the first one. To have a comfortable life now, but lose it because we don't know Jesus. Or Jesus says we can have a life now that can be lived with him, that is difficult. There's a perspective here, isn't there, that we can have the easy life, but in the end, uh, we'd lose our soul. And Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, after your 70 years, which most of us don't have left, What good is it to have the flash car, the bursting bank account, the bigger house, the reputation, uh, the sexual encounters, the extravagant holidays, the social approval, uh, the Sunday morning lion? If you lose your soul, what good is that? The answer's obvious. I often get asked in Pathfinders, is that a rhetorical question or not? This one is. Sure, it's easier to live like that. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying you can't trade any of that in for your soul and for eternal life. You need to have thrown your lot in with Jesus, who's died for you. I just want to pause uh, for a moment this morning to ask if you're uh, not a Christian, if you are weighing up uh, whether you want to follow Jesus or not. Ask that question, what good is it to gain everything this world could possibly offer you, but lose uh, your soul. In the end, what do you want to gain? Life now or life uh, for eternity? What about the other option? The person who lives this cross-shaped life with Jesus at the helm will gain eternal life for their souls. Eternal life uh, with God, the very thing Uh, that they were created for. I've always found this quote helpful from Jim Elliot. He's absolutely right when he says, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can be ashamed of Jesus now. We can ignore him. But it's quite frightening at what the outcome will be at the end, isn't it? Did you see that last verse? Perhaps read it again later uh, this afternoon and think about it. 
Well, let me uh, conclude with a few final thoughts. It's important to point out none of this means uh, purposely making yourself miserable or purposely searching for martyrdom, although we should be prepared to do that if necessary. But it's to see that the genuine Christian life is cross-shaped. And if we're serious about following him, it's going to mean a cross-shaped life. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected and die before he rises. And so must his followers. So it's worth just asking the question this morning, isn't it? There's quite a few questions we could ask. But am I truly denying myself for Christ and for the sake of the gospel? Am I doing it in my marriage, in my family life? Is my retirement cross-shaped? Am I taking Jesus seriously at his word here in Mark 8? Is my attitude on eternal gain or just focused on the here and now? If you're anything like me, you will have uh, read this passage and been incredibly convicted of an awful lot of things. But it's a comfort, isn't it, to see Peter stand up and get it wrong. (laughs) To have not fully understood what it means to follow Jesus and the call on his life. But like Peter, we can be so thankful that because Jesus did live that cross-shaped life, even our wrong attitudes as Christians are pardoned if we've turned back to him. The example of Peter is a huge encouragement to us. Even as a follower of Jesus, he went on to deny him on the night before he did lay down his life. But Jesus gladly forgave him and he used him hugely for the sake of his name as he shared the gospel across the world. And tradition says that Peter really did have his blurred vision corrected. He himself ended up dying on a cross. But I hope none of us would say that he was a fool for doing so. Let me um, pray for us. Someone said, Jesus has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' teaching here to help us understand his mission on earth. We thank you that he so willingly came and died, suffered and died in our place so that we could know the certainty of our sins being forgiven and eternal life. We pray that we would take seriously his call to deny ourselves and take up our cross as we follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.